morning. It's good to be here. Good to worship with you. Glad to be home again. Yes. And amongst family. I yesterday we 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 met for a couple of hours and talked about preaching and teaching. So today I'm going to preach in the first service and teach in the second service. For those of you who were yesterday, you know what that means. And I, I do have permission to do this. It's, it's one of my favorite stories is about St. Augustine, an early church father who is a bishop in Africa and gets invited to Carthage, which is this enormous city, one of the largest cities in the world at the time, to preach on a particular saint's day. It was a high day, essentially Mardi Gras in the ancient world, and he gets invited to preach. I mean, they, they, they knew how to party then in ways that we, we have forgotten, I'm afraid. But he's invited to preach, and when he gets up to preach... The people are insistent, they're at a distance from him, kind of roped off, and they're insisting that they want him to come closer so they can hear him better. And he loses his temper and just walks off from the pulpit and doesn't preach that day. And then the next day, he has to get up and face them again. And what he says when he gets up the next day is, okay, I'll address what happened yesterday, but I need to tell you that I just did what I did yesterday. I didn't ask for permission because I knew if I asked for permission, he would tell me no. My bishop would tell me no. And it would be easier for me to be forgiven than to have permission. So you didn't know this, but that notion of it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission comes from an ancient church father who got mad in the middle of a sermon and walked away. <laughs> I have permission today, and I'm not going to walk away in the middle of the sermon. But I am going to stop before I'm done. And in the second service, I'm going to teach about what I've preached about in, in the first service. So if there, are, if there are gaps, if you're left uncertain about what I mean, feel free to stick around for the second service. It may not help, but it may help. Or watch the service later on. I've been, I've been given, as you've been told, I've been given the assignment of talking about the kingdom. And many of us, I'm sure, are familiar with that phrase, but it often there is, there is a kind of deadliness in familiarity. Right? You remember the, the story about the Ark of the Covenant. David wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant into the holy city, establish its presence alongside his presence as king. And there's a moment as they're bringing the Ark into the city where the Ark, the the ox stumbles and the Ark shakes and it seems it's going to fall and one of the men who's attending it reaches out to steady it and is struck dead by it, which is a terrifying story, troubling story. I'm not going to try to explain it at all now, except to say it's an illustration about familiarity, about the ways in which when you're accustomed to the language of God, terms like the kingdom or practices of prayer and communion, you can be familiar with it in a way that makes you presume on what, it, what is happening and what it means. And it's easy for Christian language to fall into cliché. It's easy for us to talk about the kingdom in ways that kind of mean everything and mean nothing. We talk about the kingdom without knowing what we're talking about when we talk about the kingdom. Jesus is insistent that what we do with our words matter. In fact, he says, by your words, you will be condemned or by your words, you will be redeemed. And you will give an account for every idle word. And that's not a reference to curse words or substitutes for curse words it's a reference to using i mean it may be if you're cursing you probably should stop 
Unless you're really enjoying the sermon, and then feel free. You can, you can, if, if it's said in praise, then I think it's acceptable. But I, when Jesus talks about idle words, he's, he's not fretting about bad language. He's talking about using the language of Scripture, using the language of worship in ways that are familiar, that are presumptuous, that are out of touch with what the Word requires of us. So today, part of what I want to do is charge that language of kingdom again with specificity. When we say kingdom, we mean something. We don't mean everything. We mean something. Now, it's something that has to do with everything. But when we say the kingdom, we don't mean the church. When we say the kingdom, we don't mean the world as it is. When we say the kingdom, we mean the kingdom. And that word brings with it a freight, a weight of responsibility that calls us to response. So all of that said, thy kingdom come. We pray this with Jesus. And as has already been said in the series, it's important to see that as the prayer begins, we are included in the place of Christ. Our Father, who art in heaven, is our privilege. It's our privilege to say this because Jesus is talking to his Father. When we say our Father, we're saying Jesus' Father and ours. Right At the end of the Gospel of John, in the exchange with Mary Magdalene in the garden, Jesus tells her, don't cling to me because I must ascend to my God and your God my father and your father, so that we share Jesus' relationship to God and we share the father's relationship to Jesus in the spirit, so that everything is meant for Jesus is meant for us and everything that happens to us happens to him and everything that has happened to him is going to happen to us so that there's no way, his fate and our fate are going to be identical in the end. So when we say our father, we don't just mean those of us who believe, We mean Jesus and everyone else who Jesus brings with him, everyone he gathers at his table, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. And we've already sung this, and Pastor Aaron drew attention to it. Everything depends on whose kingdom it is. As Robert Jensen says, the only reason it's good news that someone is raised from the dead is that that someone is Jesus and that Jesus is God the Son. Hitler is risen from the dead or Stalin is risen from the dead is not good news. Jesus is risen from the dead and that's good news because of who he is and who he is in relation to the Father and therefore the relation we have with him. So everything depends on whose kingdom it is. Maximus, the confessor, who's again early church father talking about this prayer in his sermons on on this prayer says that in these opening lines of the prayer, we name the triune God. When we say, our Father, we name the Father. When we say, hallowed be thy name, we refer to the Son, who is, he says, the enfleshment of the name of God. He is the holy name, living in the flesh. Jesus is the name of God. And he says, and when we say the kingdom, we're referring to the Spirit, who brings all of God to bear on creation. So, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. We're naming the God who is Father, who is Son, who is Spirit, and then who wraps us in the fellowship of his own life. When we say the kingdom then, the first thing we're saying is, this is God, and the relation God has with God, in which we are included. So, when I say thy kingdom come, I'm saying God come. In many ways, the the distillation of the prayer of the prophets is, how long, Lord, before you come and make right what is wrong? How long, Lord, before you come and set right what has gone wrong? How long, Lord, before you hear our cry 
and respond to our need. The cry of the prophets is, how long, Lord? The cry of the apostles is, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, and make right what has gone wrong. Come quickly and bring, bring the world into its fullness. So when we say, thy kingdom come, we're calling on God to be God in fullness. God be God to us in fullness. So that's the first sense of kingdom. When we talk about the kingdom, we're talking about God. We're talking about the God who raised Jesus from the dead. We're talking about the God that rests upon the flesh of Jesus. We're talking about God who is Father, who is Son, who is Holy Spirit. We're also talking about the God whose fullness is our fullness. So the second sense of kingdom is creation brought into its fullness because God is prevailing in all things. We sang it today. In the kingdom that's coming, love is all. And faith is sight because God is all in all. The God who fills all things with himself, Ephesians 1, fills creation up so that creation becomes itself. The more of God there is, the more creation is itself. This is a fundamental difference between evil and good. Between evil, which is nothingness, and God, who is everything. And that is, evil possesses. The more evil is present in your life, the more you are in bondage to it and the less you are yourself. So when Legion is possessed by the devils, he is not himself. In fact, we don't even know his name because he has the name of what possesses him. But our God does not possess. He fills and fulfills. And the more God is present in your life, the more you have your own name. God does not take you over and replace you. God includes you in his life in such a way that you become yourself. And you become fully yourself. All of your potentials realized, every promise brought to fruition, to fruition, you're experiencing full flourishing because God is in you. And when God is all in all, everything is itself in fullness. This is why when Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, he says the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace. But the culmination of the fruit of the Spirit, when the fruit of the Spirit has come to full flourishing, it means self-control. Because when you are led by God, you are only, only then, able to make your own decisions. Perfect love casts out choice because choice is a reflection of the fact that you're bound. You can't see the truth. You're feeling around in the dark for what should be done. You make choices because you can't see what should be done. But when God is in you fully, you see what should be done and you do it. As Jesus says, I see what the Father is doing and I do it. Jesus doesn't feel around in the dark for what should be done. He knows when to speak. He knows when to keep his mouth shut. He knows when to heal. He knows when to refrain from healing. He knows when to gather. He knows when to scatter because he sees God and he responds in kind. Where the spirit is most present, I am most myself. Where the spirit is leading, I'm making my own decisions. And only then. Because God fulfills, he doesn't possess This is one of the reasons we have to be careful when we talk about God using us. God does not use us. God works with us. I'm not a tool in the hand of God. A human being who is a tool is a slave by definition. A human being who is a slave is a tool. A human being who is a tool is a slave. But we are not slaves. We're sons and daughters. We are the bride of Christ. We are the body of Christ. We are the temple of the Spirit. God does not use us. We're not things at God's disposal. We are partners with God. 
We are co-embodiments with God. When we speak, God is speaking. When we act, God is acting. When we're present, God is present. And this, this shift in imagination is crucial. That This is what Jesus says in the, at the end of the Gospel of John. He appears to them after his resurrection. He breathes on them and says, Receive Holy Spirit. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When you forgive, people are forgiven. When you bind, people are bound. What does he say to Peter? I give you the keys of the kingdom. If you loose, things are loosed. If you bind, things are bound. Because God is partnering with us, including us in his action, not using us as his tools. So when the kingdom comes, there is participation in God. So God is the kingdom. The kingdom is God coming in fullness so that we, in our fullness, do what we are called to do and bring God's goodness to bear in the world. That's what we mean when we say kingdom. For the kingdom of God to come then, that's what we pray, your kingdom come, is to pray that God's will will be done for all things, in all things, and when that happens, we will have everything we need. Right? Notice in the prayer, we say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then what do we receive? Daily bread. And as Maximus says, daily bread here has a double reference. It's the food you need to live. You don't live by bread alone, but you do need bread. But you don't live by bread alone. You also live by the word of God. So you are kept alive, both in this double sense, by the bread you receive from God and the bread you receive from God, the word of God that gives you life, which was brought together at this table. So we, we receive what we need. And the first thing we need is just provision. Give me my daily bread and forgive us. And notice, not forgive me. Forgive us. It doesn't even matter if you're personally in the wrong. You are bound to people who are in the wrong. I'm not always the one sinning. But guess what? If you're sinning, I am. Because we're bound to each other. So my intercession for forgiveness is not just God forgive me. It's God forgive us. And not just those of us in this room. But everyone everywhere who claims the name of Jesus and misrepresents him, misrepresents me and misrepresents you. And so we, all Christians, whether we like them or not, are ours. I can name some I don't like. Right? And there are other Christians out there who are thinking of us as the Christians they don't like. But Jesus has bound us together. And when I say, Father, forgive us, I mean, forgive those of us in this room, forgive those who are already dead and gone, forgive those who are doing things that I don't think are Christian at all, forgive us as we are forgiving, so we're receiving forgiveness, and keep us, keep us, protect us, and guide us, don't lead us into temptation, lead us into the fullness of life. So when the kingdom comes, God comes in fullness, we're brought to fullness, and we receive everything we need. And this is why Paul says in Romans 14, the kingdom of God It's not arguing about food and drink. The kingdom of God is justice, shalom, and joy. It's justice, all things made right for all people. It's therefore peaceful. Notice, no justice, no peace. The kingdom of God is not peace instead of justice. It's justice and therefore peace and therefore joy. If you try to insist that people have joy without peace, it's manipulation. If you try to insist that people have peace without justice, it's cruelty. 
But if you let God establish his justice, it brings peace. And in that peace, we find the joy of the Lord, the joy that is God's own life. So, why do we often misrepresent the kingdom so badly then? If all of this is true, and it's, there's more to the truth than this, but all of this is true, I, I think it's because Christians make one of two mistakes, sometimes both mistakes in the same breath, and that is we think of the kingdom either individualistically or collectively, or we think of it in otherworldly ways or in worldly ways. So I'm not going to unpack in this service all of those differences, but I do think that if you look at the history of Christian teaching and practice about the kingdom, you can see that we keep making one or the other or both of these mistakes. We either think the kingdom is just the soul of the individual believer, and all that matters is your relationship to Jesus. You and Jesus have your own thing going. Who cares about anybody else? And there are certain forms of Christianity now, as well as then, that emphasize your relationship with God and all that matters is that you know God, that you're at peace with God, that your sins are forgiven. But that's not the Christian life. That's not who we're called to be. So you need to be wary of any talk about the kingdom that says the kingdom is you, the kingdom is your soul, and has nothing to do with the world outside of you. I grew up amongst Pentecostals who were profoundly individualistic. We would, we would tell people, if you want revival, draw a circle around yourself. <laughs> right? Quite literally, people did this, not just figuratively. We were pretty literal-minded folks. Draw a circle around yourself and say, if nobody else wants revival, I do. If nobody else is going to pursue God, I will. And so what comes down to is I have the relationship with God I want for myself. I'm as close to God as I want to be. And I can be intimate with God. It doesn't have anything to do with you, much less to do with the world. And so in, in the churches I grew up in, we would have testimony services which were usually tattling and complaining services. We just called them testimony services. But there was a rubric for, this, for the testimony for everyone who didn't know what else to say. And that was, I thank God that he saved me, sanctified me, filled me with the sweet Holy Ghost. Anybody, anybody know what I'm talking about? He saved me, he sanctified me, he filled me with the sweet Holy Ghost. Pray for me that I will endure to the end. Now that's hopeful right there, isn't it? I mean, but you, you see what, what that imagination suggests is God has done something for me. Now I'm just trying to hold on and not let all of you spoil what I have with God. You've heard me talk about this before, but one of the men in our church was a man named Brother Wright. No one has ever been more aptly named than Brother Wright. <laughs> Brother Wright claimed to be so fully sanctified, he could not be tempted except by Christians. And so he said, I'm not going to be able to attend church anymore because I won't sin unless you drive me to it. So I'm going to stay home on Sunday, just me and the Lord. That is the kind of extreme example of the individualist account of what the kingdom is. And notice how otherworldly it is. I don't care what's happening outside of these walls, what's happening to my neighbors, what's happening to those who are sick or poor, what's happening to those who are abused or neglected. I don't care what's happening at the border or in the streets or in the jails or in the hospitals. I just care about what's happening in my heart. Right? And you're like Nero, while Rome burns, you're singing praise songs. This, by the way, is one of the ways we preach the story of Paul and Silas in prison. I'm just getting started. I've, got to, I've really got to hurry here. We might have to have three services today, Pastor. <laughs> 
You remember this story? Paul and Silas are in prison, and it's midnight, and they begin to sing. And man, we loved that. We loved that because it was about how we don't care what's happening in the world. Just you and God can have this intimacy, or you and one other person, maybe. And suddenly there's an earthquake, and the jail is, is shattered open, and there we, we lose control at that point. People are running the aisles and jumping pews and swinging from the chandeliers. Except if you go back and read the story, one of the things that's striking about it is we don't know what song they were singing. We don't know that they were singing praise. We don't know what they were singing. But it also, this is even more important, it doesn't say God sent the earthquake. It just says an earthquake came. And the most important thing of all is when the doors swung open, they didn't leave. They stayed for the sake of the jailer. So real Christian spirituality is the kingdom comes, the kingdom comes, and it doesn't shake you free of responsibility. It makes it possible for you to be responsible. The coming of the kingdom, the coming of the spirit, is not to break you out of prison so you can leave the jailer and all the others there and go on about your merry way. God, if God is in the earthquake, it's so you have the chance to stay behind with those whose lives are at risk because of what's happened in the earthquake. So the kingdom of God comes not to free us from responsibility, but to press us into it. It is possible to be so heavenly minded You're no earthly good, except what that turns out to be is not heavenly minded, but just mindless. So I got to hurry. Second thing, it's also possible to think of the kingdom in ways that are too collectivist. Now, this is usually not our temptation, but it is it is a temptation for many Christians who think of the church as the kingdom or even worse, their nation as the kingdom. And sometimes they confuse even that distinction. And in that case, people are not heavenly minded enough to be any earthly good, because they can't discern the good. So it's possible to be heavenly minded in a way that's just mindless. It's also possible to be so collectively concerned, so concerned about what's happening to us, that you can't discern prophetically what needs to be spoken to discern the way forward for us. So it's possible for us to go wrong by thinking only about my relation to God. It's also possible to go wrong by thinking we could never be wrong. But there's no guarantee that in a group of us, we're going to be perfectly discerning what God is wanting. Sometimes we need the prophet to stand up and say, listen, folks, I know we all seem to have the same mind, but it's not the mind of Christ. And we need to return. We need to repent together. So those mistakes. Now, let me really quickly go through what Jesus says about the kingdom. There are, he says a lot more than I can cover today, but I'm going to say very quickly six things that I think Mark Jesus teaching about the kingdom, and they're all paradoxes. They're glories that are set alongside each other in parallel. And they're not reconciled, they're juxtaposed. Two things that seem to be opposed to each other. Jesus says, you've got to hold both of these things together in order to understand what the kingdom is. If you want to come back in the second service, I'm going to explain these six. Now I'm just going to tell you what they are. First, the kingdom has, exactly, I'm preaching, I don't have time to stop for that. Jesus says the kingdom has come, and it is coming. It's already here, and it's not yet here. The kingdom is breaking in, but you have to press into it. Second thing, the kingdom is a gift, and you must earn it. The kingdom is a gift, and you must earn it. Three, 
The kingdom is for the least of these, but it requires the greatest obedience. You hear the paradox? It's for the least of these. It's for those who have nothing left to lose. It's for those who are weakest and most broken and most estranged. And what's required of them is a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. So it's for the least. It requires the greatest. Four, it comes suddenly, unmistakably. And it comes slowly and secretly. Jesus needs to make up his mind. Right? Right, which is it? Which is it? It comes suddenly, and you can't mistake it, like lightning bolt. And it comes slowly and secretly like yeast in a loaf. It's already fully here, and it's not here at all. It's for five. It's for everyone and excludes most of us. It's for everyone and excludes most of us, right? If you don't come back in the second service, you're going to have to work this out on your own. (laughs) Read the Gospel of Matthew, then read the Gospel of Luke. Come back to these six points. Do that again a few times, and you'll start to see, I mean, how Jesus is saying all these things. And then six, and this is the point I want to press on right now. It brings healing to those without and suffering to those within. This is what makes his kingdom different. Just a moment ago, Pastor Jade led us in the liturgy of the throne room. And we cast our crowns. But here's the thing about the throne room. When you throw down your crown of gold or silver, you're given another one. A crown of thorns. Because to be in the presence of Christ is to become like him. It's to share in his kingship and to share in his kingly ways. And this is a king whose crown is thorns, whose throne is a cross, whose sword is a word of forgiveness, who sheds his own blood rather than the blood of his enemies. This is a king who rules by serving, who excludes by including, and includes by excluding. This is a king whose ways are not our ways. And whose thoughts are not our thoughts. This is a king who speaks what we cannot understand, does what we could not have even thought to ask for, because his justice is merciful and his mercy is justice. This is a king who leads by following and who calls us to follow by leading. This is a king who requires everything of us so that we can discover that it was all gift. This is a king unlike any other king. This is a king who does not take, but only gives, but he gives in a way that requires you to give up everything you thought you held precious. This is a king who is building a family by telling you you first have to hate your family. This is a king who is forgiving your sins by telling you that there are unforgivable sins. This is a king who's not like any other king. And we have to come back again and again and again to what it means to share in his life. It means that we don't let him act so we don't have to. He acts in ways that make it possible for us to share in his action. Jesus did not suffer so you don't have to suffer. He suffered so you can suffer in him and with him. He did not die so you don't have to die. He died so you can die. 
He didn't obey so you don't have to worry about obedience. He obeyed so obedience becomes possible for you. He did not weep in the garden so you would know no tears. He wept in the garden so his tears would have become your tears. He did not cry, my God, my God, why, you, why have you forsaken me? So you would never know forsakenness. He would cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So you could enter into his forsakenness for others. So I'm going to show you this image and get out of the way. This is a, an engraving by David Jones, who was a Welsh poet and artist in the early 20th century. And you can see... One of the things that's striking about this image is that it actually shows Christ rising. Not risen, but rising. Most Christian representations of Christ either show him having already risen, or they simply show an empty tomb. But this shows Christ one foot still in the grave. Not even standing up yet fully. He's rising, but not yet risen. And notice, look at his hands, his side, and his feet. They're bleeding and shining with glory at the same time. The blood still flows, and the light of God radiates from the wounds. He is stepping into and through a garden, and he's looking out at we do not know what. This is the image of the kingdom that's already come and is still coming. That is only for the least, but requires the greatest. That is for the healing of others, but requires our suffering. Notice what's happening here. He's wrapped in a banner. Those of you who can read Latin know that it is Isaiah 63. Isaiah 63. So let's turn there. Everybody still with me? Are we okay? We're in shouting distance of the end. Isaiah 63. This is what is wrapping this Jesus who is rising, not yet risen, stepping through a garden and out into nothing. Who is this that comes from Eden? From Basra, in garments stained crimson. Who is this so splendidly robed, marching in his great might? That's our cry. Who is this? And he answers, It is I, announcing vindication, mighty to save. And we cry, Why are your robes red? Why are your garments like theirs who tread the winepress? And he answers, I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their juice spattered on my garments and stained all my robes for the day of vengeance was in my heart. And the year for my redeeming work has come. Who is this rising, not yet risen? He comes from Basra. He comes from Eden in garments stained with blood. Now, this is at the end of Isaiah, but in the middle of Isaiah, Isaiah 34, we have a promise, a prophecy about this very event. Isaiah 34. 
And listen to what is prophesied about what the Messiah will do. Draw near, O nations, to hear. O peoples, give heed. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their hordes. He has doomed them. He has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall wither like a leaf withering on a vine, or fruit withering on a fig tree. When my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens, lo, it will descend upon Edom, upon the people I have doomed to judgment. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra. A great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them, and young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall be soaked with blood, and their soil made rich with fat. A year of vindication by Zion's cause. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. No one shall pass through it forever and ever. But the hawk and the hedgehog shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall live in it. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plummel of chaos over its nobles. They shall name it no kingdom there. Now this is a vision of of damnation, of God's wrath poured out in fullness on God's greatest enemy, which is Edom. This is Esau. This is the nation that refuses to come to Israel's aid in the time of need. This is the one God says he hates. Jacob have I loved. Esau have I hated. Esau in Israel's scripture is the embodiment of everything wicked. Esau is the one you find beyond the pale, the one for whom there is no hope, the one who cannot be forgiven, the molester, the pedophile, the murderer, the rapist, the liar, the one who destroys families, the embodiment of evil. And Isaiah prophesies about the coming of the wrath of God against the evil, and that destruction will be so extensive, so absolute, that its name shall be no kingdom there. Nothing is left. And then in Isaiah 63, which we've just read, the prophet sees God having accomplished it. Who is this who comes from Eden, who comes up from Basra covered in blood? So the victory of God happened, but we didn't witness it. It was promised that God would come against his enemies and destroy them, reducing them to nothing. 
the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. Its name shall be no kingdom there. And then it happened. We didn't see the war. We didn't see the fire of God fall. We didn't see the rivers turn to pitch. We didn't see the bloodshed. We simply see the warrior coming home from the war covered in blood. And the warrior says to us, in my heart was vindication. But who is this? Really? Show me the image again. This is the warrior home from the war. Whose blood is on him? His own blood. Not the blood of Pilate, not the blood of Caiaphas, not the blood of Herod, not the blood of Judas, not the blood of Peter, not the blood of Mary. The only blood on this warrior's garments is his own blood. And how did he bring hell? He brought hell to hell. He brought damnation to damnation. Where is the place we say there is no kingdom there? We say it not of the dead, but of death itself. Not of the sinners, but of sin itself. Not of those who are damned, but damnation itself. What God has done when we weren't looking is he has fulfilled the promise to destroy And what he has destroyed is destruction. He has fulfilled the promise to ravage his enemies, but his enemy is not you or me or those we consider enemies. His enemies are those that are against us, within us. His enemies are not your enemies. His enemies are those voices in you that are against what he means for you. You are a sheep. I am a sheep. But there's a wolf in me and a goat in me, and a lion in me. And this shepherd is the only shepherd who can lead the sheep in me away from the wolf in me. He's the only shepherd who can kill the lion in me, and the bear in me, and the wolf in me without killing me. This is the one who comes from Edom and from Basra. He's the one who becomes sin to destroy sin, who dies to trample down death by death. So here's the secret of the kingdom. If you want to share with this king in his rising, you have to do for his enemies what he has done for you and yours. And this, and I'm done, this is what I mean when I say this kingdom means healing for those outside and suffering for those inside. Whenever we try to embody Christianity from a concern for our own freedoms or our own rights, it is blasphemy. Because it is a contradiction of the one who is a sign of contradiction against all the kingdoms of this world. The reason kingdoms rise and fall is that they're concerned about their own future. They oppress and pillage and manipulate because they want to survive. But this is a God who does nothing but serve those who are against him. And precisely because he loves his enemies unto the death, his kingdom is without end. And this, I think, is the word of the Lord for us. He's rising, and we're behind him, 
still in the tomb, awake, but still in the darkness. And he's stepping out of that tomb into a blank future. He's going to walk through that garden that's already appearing around him and keep walking. And as he walks, that garden is going to spread over that entire page. Every step he takes, it's going to create the garden. And either we stay in the tomb or we get behind this warrior home from the war and we trace that path with him and not just behind him and with him, but as his body. Now, I'm going to talk more about this in the second service, but one of the problems we have with thinking about the kingdom is we think about it as something that's coming no matter what we do. And there is a way in which that's true. But as I told you already, Jesus talks in paradoxes. And it is true that his kingdom is coming no matter what you do. It's also true that the future of our church and this city and this nation and this world depends entirely on how we live the gospel. If we live as hypocrites, the future will be soaked with poison and betrayal and confusion. If we live self-concerned, we will produce people who are more self-concerned and more self-concerned and more self-concerned. And Christianity might survive for a while, but the gospel won't. This is hard to get our minds around, but it is true that God is God and there's nothing I can do about it. It is also true that God has entrusted our future to us. And that page, that blank page, is your future and mine. It's our kids' future and our grandkids' future. It's the future of kids on the other side of the world. It's the future of the rich and the poor, of the sick and the well. It's the future of Democrats and Republicans. It's the future of blacks and whites. It's the future of those who believe and those who do not believe. And it is in my hands and your hands. It is in my hands and your hands. And if I want to make that future what Christ wants to make that future, there is only one way to do that. There's only one way to do that. And that's to suffer with him for the healing of others. We have for so long, and I really am, 30 seconds from done, we have preached a Christianity that is about your healing at the expense of others. Come to Jesus And if you do, he will reward you for coming to him. All those lost sheep, all those goats, all those lions, all those bears, they don't receive the blessing of God. But if you will obey and come and give your life to him, then he will shower you with blessing. That is blasphemy. He will shower your life with his life. So that the only blood on your body is your blood and not the blood of your enemies. So the only crown you wear is a crown of thorns. And the only throne you have is a cross. If you would come after me, he could not say this more plainly. If you would come after me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Those who are first will be last. But if you do that, if you throw down your crown of gold and pick up that crown of thorns, you will hurt And everybody around you will heal. There are two Christianities. There's a Christianity that heals you and leaves your neighbors hurting. 
And there's a Christianity that allows you to hurt and heals your neighbors. And all I can say to you is, that's our king. He is a warrior, mighty to save. But he always fights in ways we don't see the war. And when the war is over, the only blood on his garments is his own. Friends, let us take a moment to pause. Holy Spirit of the living God, as we still our hearts before you, with these seeded words compressed with power and grace and life falling on our hearts, unpack them, begin a deep work, help us to hear and discern what you are saying and doing even right now. renewed revelation with all sincerity and with faith as a mustard seed, would you pray this prayer together with me? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever amen friends would you stand this morning as we prepare our hearts to come and receive the body and the blood of Christ and Chris if you could, I will give some direction, but I'd love for you to lead us to the table this morning. For those of you who are here joining us today, perhaps for the first time, very simply, we ask that everyone just exit on the left-hand side of your row. And you can come to one of these three tables and receive one of these small little packages, which contain on the top a wafer speaking to the body of Christ. And then there is another which opens up to the blood of Christ. Come to the table of the Lord, friends, this morning. The Lord welcomes you.
take the bread with me. There's, there's a fact about Jesus' story that's so obvious we overlook it. It's hidden in plain sight. And that is the only way to know, the only way anyone in Jesus' life could have known that he was God was not by looking at him, but by looking at what he left in his wake. You couldn't see if, if Jesus, if we had been with Jesus, Galilee or Jerusalem or Jericho, he would have looked like anybody else. We know this because the gospels tell us, we know your mom and dad. We've been to Nazareth. Who are you? This, this is the thing about God that I don't think we can wrap our minds around without a deep transfiguration. And that is, God does not look like we expect him to look. If you're looking for God, you're going to miss him. If you want to see God, look at what happens to the people this man is with. If you want to see what holiness looks like, it looks like absolute ordinariness that transfigures the lives of people in its wake. A saint doesn't look special. The only thing about a saint that is special is that the people the saint is with are changed. The saint doesn't sound wise, but you leave with wisdom. The saint doesn't seem holy, but you leave with a sense of God's holiness. The saint is probably old, ugly, bent, kind of smelly, and then you leave with a sense of beauty, touched by something that makes no good sense. Jesus had no beauty that we should desire him. He made all things beautiful. This is my body, he said and it's bread this is my blood and it's wine because when he is present he takes these I can see what this is this is, this is hardly rightly called bread <laughs> it's a bread substitute but here's the thing you know what this is called it's called a host because God is the kind of guest who brings his own hospitality with him. And this little white host, it's nothing. Like, it's as close to nothing as you can get. And you're about to put God in your mouth. God looks like nothing. And he brings everything in his wake. This, he says, this is blood. I don't want to drink blood. I'm not going to talk about the recent Kenneth Copeland sermon in which he pretended to cut his hand and drink blood. Don't, don't look that up, especially not right now. This is, this is, you wouldn't have if I didn't make that happen. This, this is blood, but here's the thing about our God. You remember we read it in Isaiah 63. He stained with blood. And then when we ask him, what is that blood? What does he say? It's the wine that I've tread alone. Because only our God can take nothing and make it everything. Only our God can take blood and make it joy.
make it wine, can take your pain and transfigure it into someone else's delight. And he did all this in the shadow of the cross on the night he was betrayed. He took this bread or something like it and he broke it and he said, eat it. And he took this cup and he said, this is my blood drink it and here's the last wonder not the last but the last one I'm going to say in this service who gives what to whom at this table we call this Eucharist because we bring gifts small gifts but gifts of bread and wine And we give them to God with thanksgiving. Lord, we thank you. But here's the thing about our God. Any gift you try to give to him is a gift he's giving to you. And every gift he gives is his own fullness. We just tried to give God bread and wine. Not wine, but a wine substitute. And what he gave us was his own life it doesn't feel like anything but here's the thing you don't know you just took God into you you're not going to feel a thing but when you leave here today other people are going to sense it in your wake did you notice in that image I showed you Jesus is rising he's stepping out of the tomb the darkness is behind him he's looking to the future Today, when you leave here and you get in the car with your family and you talk about how, dear God, you hope it clears up in the second service and you go to lunch, you're not going to be thinking particularly holy thoughts. But here's the thing that's going to happen. God is in you. And when you get out of that restaurant and you go back to your car, the waiter, the people across the room from you, they're not going to be able to name it. They're not even going to be able to bring it to speech in any way. But they're going to have been in the presence of Jesus. And a week from now, or a year from now, or a decade from now, a prayer is going to come up out of them. They'll never know. But that prayer, a decade from now, will be because you sat in the restaurant with them, and you didn't think a holy thought, you didn't pass out a chick track, you didn't make the sign of the cross, but God is in you. And our God is infectious. Our God radiates light and grace and peace. Go in peace. Jonathan, let us lift our voices in a song of thanksgiving. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts.
Bonnie, would you take Chris and Julie to the offices as they can just rest between now and the next service? Friends, would you lift up your hands? I want to just speak a commissioning blessing over you today. When Jesus resurrected from the dead, he went into a room of his disciples and he spoke over them and he says, in the same way that the Father has sent me, so I send you. Today we've gathered together by the invitation of the Holy Spirit as the people of God. We have sung songs of praise and worship. We have lifted up our voices in intercession. We have sat under the shaping proclamation of the gospel and we have come to the table of the Lord. And now it is your vocation to be sent into the world, to your neighborhoods, your homes, your offices, to be sent into your community as carriers of the life of God. So may the Lord bless you and may he keep you. May he protect you. May he deliver you from all evil. May the Lord be gracious to you in all ways. May he remove shame and guilt from you. May the Lord lift up your head, cause your face to radiate as his countenance glows on you. And may the Lord empower you by his spirit for the work that he's called you to. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we love you, Midtown. Be blessed.